Tegan, you know what the two best parts of the Thanksgiving mailbag episode last week were? So this isn't mashed potatoes and gravy you're talking about? Well, that was one. It meant that it was leading into Thanksgiving and a Thanksgiving feast. I hope you had a great one. Outstanding. Excellent. Second was we got a follow-up letter to the mailbag from Casper in Copenhagen. I did see that. I love that. Thank you, Casper. We're not going to read it today. We'll save it for an upcoming mailbag, which also offers a quick reminder to others. Keep the emails coming in. We will have another mailbag or two, certainly by the end of the year and maybe even into the beginning of next year. But right now in this year, one of the most intriguing stories might be coming to an end, perhaps even just after we've recorded this conversation on Thursday, but probably this should go into Friday, which is George Santos. You wrote this week about the House GOP's incredible shrinking majority. If the House votes to expel George Santos this week, which is the conventional wisdom right now when you wrote this piece earlier today, then House Republicans will have only a razor-thin majority. Republicans currently hold 222 House seats compared to 213 for the Dems. That leaves the GOP with room to lose just four members on party line votes. The effort to oust Santos, along with the expected resignation of Ohio Congressman Bill Johnson, could shrink the margin further. And there's increasing speculation that McCarthy might step down early. So how thin is this majority going to get? A little bit of a moving target. Obviously, it's a dynamic situation because each time there's a House seat vacated, the governor in the respective state will call a special election for some time in the future to fill that. So seats are not kept vacant forever. And obviously, if George Santos were to get expelled, Governor Kathy Hochul in New York would call a special election. That would be held at some point in the future, and whoever wins would take the seat. A seat like George Santos's is a battleground seat. It is a swing seat. And with the performance of Republicans in that district and kind of the embarrassment that Republicans have had with George Santos, it's probably likely that that seat would tip towards the Democrats this time around. So that would be a flip of a seat. But, you know, as you go through each one of these seats, a seat like Kevin McCarthy's, let's say Kevin McCarthy decides he's not going to run for reelection. And not only that, he's going to step down, he's going to be out early as well. That seat would likely, after a special election, go to Republicans. That's a solidly Republican district, as is the seat in Ohio, Bill Johnson. There would be gaps, obviously, in each case. So there would be a period until those special elections where there would be no Republican votes or Democratic votes potentially in the Santos seat. They wouldn't exist, yes? Exactly. So you could see a situation, depending upon how each of these seats falls, you could see a situation where Republicans might have a two-seat majority or possibly even a one-seat majority, You know, depending upon the timing of all of this. And if that's the case, then you all of a sudden get into some political trickery. There are 18 seats that President Biden won in the 2020 election, which are currently held by Republicans. You could easily see strong arm tactics by Democrats trying to get some of these congressmen and women to flip to the other party, perhaps. So all sorts of interesting things could happen. You're getting into brokered convention political junkies. We we should come up with a term for that. Brokered convention talk might be the catch-all for all of this. The point is, is that we saw this with Senator Jim Jeffords a couple of decades ago in Vermont, where Democrats went to him, got him to flip. 
that gave Democrats more power in the Senate. And so you can see these types of things happening and it's exciting to talk about and all the rest. But when you have such a small majority to begin with, not only is it harder for the majority party to pass legislation because they can't afford to lose barely any votes, they have to get their caucus completely in line. Then, you know, there's obviously the situation where house seats are vacated all the time due to deaths or other events that occur. And you could see a majority literally slip away from Republicans here if they don't watch it. What's your take on Kevin McCarthy unplugged? Unplugged (laughs) and punching below the belt. Instead of, you know, elbowing in the kidneys, or are we talking about his phone call with Donald Trump? All of it. Well, when was the phone call, though, with Donald Trump? According to what was reported in the Washington Post, there was a phone call that Kevin McCarthy had right after he lost the speakership with Donald Trump, in which Donald Trump tried to explain to him that the reason why you lost the speakership wasn't because Donald Trump didn't come to your defense, which Donald Trump did not. It was because he did not move to expunge the two impeachments that Donald Trump was faced with, and he did not endorse Trump in the 2024 election. And so Donald Trump said, yeah, Kevin, this is all on you. And reportedly, this is what Kevin McCarthy has told other lawmakers. Reportedly, Kevin McCarthy told Trump to uh, go F yourself. He gave him the Elon Musk to advertisers (laughs) treatment. Exactly. He gave him the Elon Musk treatment, told him to go F himself. And there you are. So you've got that. You've got the uh, kidney punch. Then you've got his most recent comment that Matt Gates belongs in jail. This is obviously a tit for tat. There was an interesting article about the power of the Florida Republican delegation, of which McCarthy was quoted taking shots at Matt Gates and saying that he really belongs in jail, that he's not much of a legislator, and that he's just a grandstander who has presumably committed crimes, according to McCarthy. And, and of course, the relationship between McCarthy and Gates stems from the fact that McCarthy urged the Ethics Committee to look into Matt Gates when he was accused of having sexual relations with underage girls. That's where this personal relationship problem that they have stems. But yeah, McCarthy said he belongs in jail. And of course, Matt Gates is never one to let a comment go unanswered. And so he came right back at Kevin McCarthy saying the only thing that he hurt was Kevin's ego. Which he might have. And yes, Gates was saying that McCarthy hurt the other congressman's kidneys. And the only thing that Gates hurt was McCarthy's ego. Is that what it was? I read it earlier. Here's the exact thing. Tough words from a guy who sucker punches people in the back. The only assault I committed was against Kevin's fragile ego. (laughs) Okay. By the way, Gates delivered that line way better than you or I just did. He did. That's why he's Matt Gates, and you and I are- uh, And we are uh, not. Let's make that clear. We are not not Matt Gates, and we're proud of it. (laughs) So given the fact that the GOP majority might be thinning the way that you've described in Congress, why might Trump likely have a GOP Congress, House and Senate, if he wins? If he wins. And that's really the situation. What I wrote earlier was when you have a polarized country like this, the House of Representatives, there's only a five seat margin there. You have the US Senate, there's only a one seat margin there. And then obviously you have the White House. What tends to happen in recent elections is that whichever way the winds are blowing on election day, it's not that one house flips one way, the other house flips the other way. It's that everything moves together. And so if Donald Trump is able to win the presidency and he's able to put together the votes that he needs in these suburban districts, these swing districts, and in these battleground states, he's more likely than not to also win the House and the Senate because the majorities are so slim in those places. 
When we look at the Senate, the Senate is already kind of stacked against Democrats, with Joe Manchin saying he would not run for re-election. The Democrats have almost no margin there. They need to win the key red states of Ohio and Montana to even have a chance at retaining control of the Senate. They would also, in that scenario, because Joe Manchin would be leaving and would be almost certainly replaced by a Republican, they would also need to win the presidency because they would need the vice president to break ties because it would be a 50-50 Senate with such a slim margin in the House. If Donald Trump were somehow to be able to win in 2024, he would more likely than not carry the House with him as well. It's just the way that our elections are moving these days. The same is true, of course, for Democrats. If Joe Biden is able to win the presidency, and and if he's able to win the presidency with a popular vote margin of six or seven percent, which would be more than enough to win an electoral college majority as well, you could see a scenario where the Democrats, not only do they take control of the House, probably handily in that situation, but they also manage to hold on the Senate, even if it's just 50-50. Do you agree that Republican establishment money, the last time that they were able to successfully elect a GOP president, was George Bush in 2000 and then 2004? Do you agree with that? Absolutely. That was the last time Republicans won the majority of the popular vote. Why does the Republican establishment money think they can do something differently this year with Nikki Haley? We talked about this a few months ago when we talk about the Republican primary, that candidates like Ron DeSantis, they look like candidates in the past, candidates like Phil Graham when he ran for president in 1996, or Jeb Bush when he ran in 2016. They raise hundreds of millions of dollars, and then their candidacies just go nowhere. These billionaires, they do think that they have the power to swing races. And as Donald Trump saw, even though most of the so-called smart money was against him in 2016, he managed to win anyway. He managed to take over a party that was none too thrilled to have him as a member at the time. I think as Elon Musk showed us this week, billionaires think differently, Chris. They totally do. By the way, maybe that's why they're billionaires, but man, that is a generous way to characterize it. He thinks differently. You and I have discussed this offline, you know, just in our regular conversations. The fact that he thinks differently is incredible and allows him to build things like cars that run on batteries and a network of charging stations across the country, if not across the world. I mean, that's a ridiculous idea that you should get laughed out of the room with, only he's done it. And building rockets, isn't that what NASA's for? But no, he did it. So there are those things that he does. And some of the other society thoughts are much more questionable, but what a diverse fellow. I guess that's the best way I can think to well, put it. Well, there's something, you know, you and I have talked about this in the past where a tech analyst that you and I both follow pretty closely, a guy named Ben Thompson, who writes a website called Stratechery, he's come up with a theory on Elon Musk, which is fairly interesting, is that when Elon Musk is constrained by the physical world, when he's building automobiles or when he's building rockets or satellites, that there are certain things that physics does not allow you to do. When he moves into the realm of social media or media in general or advertising or things like free speech, where he can literally say whatever he wants, he can effectively do whatever he wants on pretty quick notice and turn things around. The fact that he's not constrained sometimes leads us in unpredictable ways. I think that Elon Musk probably works best in the physical world and that when it turns to things like social media, Twitter, advertising, watch out. I think Linda Yaccarino, his CEO of what was once called Twitter, I could just see her dying inside as Elon Musk was being interviewed by Andrew Ross Sorkin. What a train wreck that was. 
you don't have to be the greatest salesperson in the world to know that telling your key clients to F themselves, it's a heck of a sales pitch. Speaking of sales pitches, why are liberal groups struggling to raise money? Well, it's unclear. That was an interesting article. So I guess Move On, one of the original online progressive groups, dates back to the early days of the internet, actually. Move On has suddenly announced that they're laying off 18 people and they're doing so because they're having a hard time actually raising money. I think it's really just that liberals, progressives, Democrats in general are in a holding pattern right here. They're trying to wait to see what's happened. I suspect that will change quite significantly if Donald Trump does, in fact, become the Republican presidential nominee and that there is something to fight against. So I suspect we're in a bit of a lull for some of these advocacy groups. I'll bet that changes once there's something to fight against. But right now, the squad in particular is facing a number of battles, growing battles within their own districts, largely, if not exclusively, but significantly based off of the Israel-Hamas situation. So I actually found it really surprising because district by district battles against the squad have absolutely been picking up over the last months. And one of the things that the squad is very good at, raising progressive money from across the country. So I find it surprising that something to fight against, as you just said, kind of actually has been occurring in many of those districts, some of those districts, and yet at the same time, fundraising is declining. I think that the interesting thing about those districts is less how much they can raise. I don't think Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has any problems raising money. I think some of the lesser known members of the squad, someone like Cori Bush or Jamal Bowman, they might have more trouble raising money, but I don't think AOC has much trouble. The interesting thing about their challenges this year is that they actually have opponents who are now able to tap into large amounts of resources. And it seems to be a single issue resource for the most part, which is all driven by their position on Israel and the Israel-Hamas war. That's really become a great funding source for some of these primary challenges that people like Cori Bush or Rashida Tlaib or Ilan Omar are facing right now. Yes, but while that's been increasing, and yes, that's creating funding on that side, it's still not evident to me why would fundraising be decreasing. And yes, let's hold AOC aside because I don't think anyone's worried about her ability to raise money. She's very good at it. But why in general is it going down? Or is it what you said earlier, that there's not enough of a motivation yet to really inspire people? Although, by the way, if Move On is laying off 18 employees, that's a bit of a statement about today, but it's also a bit of a statement about what they think is going to happen next month or the month after. 18 people is a lot of people. I think we're confusing two things right here. The candidates have their own abilities to raise money, and that has to do with their own voting records, their own agendas, their own personalities, their own fundraising networks. What we're talking about here with regards to Move On is other liberal groups. It's some of these advocacy groups that are having a hard time tapping into funds. I don't think you can have a blanket statement that says all progressive candidates are having trouble raising money. Like I said, AOC- I got you. So not enough fighting or pushback against specific issues. And so that's your point that if Donald Trump were to become the nominee and all of a sudden every progressive issue, certainly many progressive issues, started to be under fire, you're saying that's when you would get more energy around fundraising for a group like Move On. Yeah. So, you know, the types of groups that we would be 
interested in watching right now to see if there's an impact on them would be particularly abortion rights groups. Yes. Because if abortion rights is a big issue in 2024, which it should be, and there are state ballot questions in some of the key battleground states, states like Arizona, which the governor of Arizona just recently endorsed a ballot issue to guarantee abortion rights in the state of Arizona. If abortion rights groups, for instance, are somehow lacking in funds, that's a real problem for Democrats. But I don't suspect that will end up being the case. I just think that we're at one of these lulls of an off-year election and that people are regrouping a little bit depending upon the issues right now. Got it. Okay. Well, the headline caught my attention, as did the headline that Rand Paul saved Joni Ernst from choking, which is definitely a good thing. And uh, I guess it's good to have a doctor in the house. Who knew that an ophthalmologist would be able to save you from choking? But, you know, good for Rand Paul for knowing the Heimlich maneuver. Good for Joni Ernst. (laughs) Maybe even better for Joni Ernst. Joni Ernst said, this is what happens when you are choking on the woke policies of the Democrats. Of course, she had to immediately turn it into a political statement. But if you read the uh, comments on Political Wire, comments on that post have quite a bit of joking about the entire incident. So, Do they? Okay. Which is fine because the senator is okay. Very good. Keep the comments coming. Keep the letters coming from the mailbag. Tegan, I'll talk to you next week. Talk to you next week, Chris.